Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Riverdale Recap Podcast. I'm Mary Kwiatkowski, and today we are going to be doing something extremely different. You may have seen the title of this episode and are a little bit confused or curious as to what this is. So here's the thing. This was just an idea I came up with, a little bit of a thought experiment, I guess, while we're in the off-season, just something sort of silly to do. I fully understand that this is a ridiculous concept for a podcast. I'm not even really sure that it can be considered a podcast, considering that 90% of this is just going to be me reading some dialogue from the show itself. But I thought it would be kind of fun to go through, look at every episode of Riverdale that has happened so far in the four seasons, and find every bit of Jughead voiceover, Jughead narration, Jughead writing, that sort of thing, that's supposed to tell the story of whatever it is that he's writing about the show and to read those through in chronological order and see if it makes sense. See if this is, you know, good writing because he's supposed to be a good writer and we've debated that on the podcast in the past. For anyone who listens to all of the episodes of the podcast, they know that repeating the Jughead voiceover is a kind of silly hobby of mine, something that I tend to write down and like to, to use it as an introduction to our podcast. So that's where I got the idea and I just wanted to see if this story flows at all. My hunch is going to be that Jughead is not actually a very good writer and that both the tense changes, grammar, you know, tone of his story isn't going to make a whole lot of sense because a lot of these clips are things where the narration sort of cuts off mid-sentence and uh, dialogue from someone else comes in. So it's probably not necessarily going to make any sense, but that's kind of what I wanted to do, you know. A lot of the episodes have a beginning Jughead opening narration, and then sometimes they'll have a closing narration at the end of the episode. Occasionally he has some small lines of dialogue throughout the episode, so I'm gonna go through for each of the seasons and just read these off. Yes, this took a ridiculous amount of work going through all of the episodes to find these, and also scrubbing through some of the uh, transcripts of the episodes that I was able to find online. I was really hoping that someone had already done this work, but apparently they hadn't. If anyone's interested interested in the text document of all of these. I will also probably post this online at some point or I can send it to you if you're interested in just reading them yourself. Also, this goes without saying, this podcast is going to cover full spoilers from seasons one through four of Riverdale and my thoughts on them. So if you haven't caught up yet, the voiceovers give a lot of spoilers. So we've got got a couple interesting things here. I, I will say for season one, it's almost all Jughead narration of this book that he's supposed supposedly writing about the death of Jason Blossom and how that has affected the town of Riverdale. And then in season two, it's a lot more about the Black Hood and the mystery that Archie is trying to solve. There's a lot of talk about like Betty being the next door neighbor and, uh, you know, what's going on there. Season three, there's a little bit more about Griffins and Gargoyles and how that is taking over the town a little bit about the farm, but for the most part, it's that. There, there's one episode in particular, season three, episode 11, is the noir-themed episode, and there's a lot of Jughead narration in that one, going through the mystery of who shot Hiram. And then season four is when it takes a little bit of a weird turn. A lot of the narration here is about the Baxter Brothers book and the lead-up to Jughead's death, or, you know, lack thereof, in that. There's 
There's a couple bits of Jughead narration that I'm choosing to not put in here because I think that they're a little bit outliers, such as in the Great Escape episode where Jughead is narrating on top of the actions we see Betty and Veronica taking. You have Jughead leading a Griffins and Gargoyles game. I I think since that's actual dialogue that Jughead is saying to people in the context of the episode, I'm not counting that as narration, even though we hear it as narration over the escape. So I'm not going to include that one. And then the other one that I'm not going to include is the narrating that Jughead does of the book that he's writing for the Baxter Brothers mystery when he has to rewrite the book before he is murdered or attempted murder in episode 13 of season four, which is the Ides of March. I will go ahead and read that clip at the end, but I'm not going to include that in the overall narrating arc here. Along with that in episode 19 of season four, the most recent episode we've had, Killing Mr. Honey, there's also some writing that Jughead did of the book Killing Mr. Honey. And like, like I said, I'll read that one too at the end, but I'm not going to include it in the full in the full arc. So this is really just a just something that we're gonna try here. I'm gonna start out actually with something that I know this is going to sound a little bit repetitive because we're gonna hear almost the same thing back to back at the beginning. But I'm gonna start out with some interesting writing that I actually got from a screenshot that you can see in season one, episode one. You actually get a couple shots of Jughead writing his book about Jason Blossom and some of it is different than the narration that I'm going to also give you in a second. So I'm just going to start out by this is what he wrote. And (laughs) I can say right away, it's very interesting punctuation grammar. If you look at the screenshot, it's got terrible capitalization and just like breaks in mid sentences. So that's pretty typical of writing that is on screen. I don't know why that can never be very realistic. But so real quick, I'm just going to start with that. This is what we see on Jughead's Word document on his computer computer as he is writing the book about Jason Blossom. This story is about a town, a small town, and the people who live in the town and work there and fall in love there, get married there, have children there, and yes, even die there. From a distance, or from the window of a train rushing by, it presents itself like so many other small towns all over the world, safe, decent, innocent, but that's only how people want it to be or think it is because they're young and don't know any better, or they're old and they don't want to know any better. At a certain point, though, you look close enough and you start seeing the shadows underneath the town. And sometimes, the shadows take over. And you're living in this place you don't recognize anymore. And you're feeling a lot of things, but safe isn't one of them. The name of this town is Riverdale. And our story begins, I guess, with what the Blossom Twins did this summer. On the 4th of July, just after dawn, Jason and Cheryl Blossom drove out to Sweetwater River for an early morning boat ride. The next thing we know happened for sure is that Dilton Doily, who was leading Riverdale's Boy Scout troop on a bird-watching expedition, came upon. Riverdale police dragged the river for Jason's body, but hours later, still nothing. Needless to say, there were no fireworks in Riverdale that night. A week later, the Blossom family buried an empty casket, and Jason's death was ruled an accident, as the story Cheryl told made the rounds. That Cheryl saw a ribbon in the water and Jason reached down to get it and accidentally tipped the boat and panicked and drowned. Which is super weird because Jason was captain of almost every sports team at Riverdale High, including water polo. Not that anyone examined those facts too closely or asked too many questions. See, the Blossoms had their tendrils wrapped around the entire town no one wanted to make enemies of. 
So a couple weird sentences in there for start, and you'll notice it's a little bit different than the classic overture that we get at the beginning of the season one, episode one premiere of this show. Okay, so now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's dive in. I'm just gonna go ahead, I'm gonna read these through. I'm not gonna break and talk about them until the end, I guess. Maybe if there's a special circumstance, I will, but I really wanna just go through and get this ridiculous undertaking over with. I'm not really sure why I decided to do this. And and really, if you're listening to this, bless your heart, because I I don't know who this is for. (laughs) It's just a weird experiment. All right, here we go. Our story is about a town, a small town, and the people who live in the town. From a distance, it presents itself like so many other small towns all over the world. Safe, decent, innocent. Get closer, though, and you start seeing the shadows underneath. The name of our town is Riverdale. And our story begins, I guess, with what the Blossom Twins did this summer. On the 4th of July, just after dawn, Jason and Cheryl Blossom drove out to Sweetwater River for an early morning boat ride. The next thing we know happened for sure is that Dilton Doily, who was leading Riverdale's Boy Scout troop on a bird-watching expedition, came upon Cheryl by the river's edge. Riverdale police dragged Sweetwater River for Jason's body, but never found it. So a week later, the Blossom family buried an empty casket, and Jason's death was ruled an accident. As the story that Cheryl told made the rounds, that Cheryl dropped a glove in the water and Jason reached down to get it, and accidentally tipped the boat, and panicked, and drowned. As for us, we were still talking about the July 4th tragedy on the last day of summer vacation, when a new mystery rolled into town. And so, it wasn't one heart that broke that night, it was two, and the night was far from over. By morning, everyone would be talking, texting, and posting about it. We'd all be feeling it. That the world around us had changed, maybe forever. That Riverdale wasn't the same town as before. That it was a town of shadows and secrets now. On Monday, the autopsy on Jason's body would take place. And on Tuesday, halfway through fifth period, the first arrest would be made. I think many of us, maybe the entire town, had been hoping against hope that somehow Jason Blossom hadn't drowned on July 4th, that we'd come to school Monday morning and there Jason would be, or that we'd see him and Cheryl in a booth at Pops. But that was before the undeniable, irrevocable fact of his bloated, waterlogged body, a corpse with a bullet hole in its forehead, and terrible secrets that could only be revealed by the cold steel blade of a coroner's autopsy scalpel, or the telltale beating of a guilty heart. To someone on the outside peering in, it would have looked like there were four people in that booth. But I was there, and I can tell you, really there were only three. A blonde girl, a raven-haired girl, and the luckiest red-headed boy in the universe. For one shining moment we were just kids, those bright neon lights of pops keeping the darkness at bay, giving way, as all nights must, to a morning of reckonings. As shocking as those three words were, They were nothing compared to the secrets that Jason's body had given up during its autopsy. That Jason didn't die on July 4th as we believed, but over a week later. Guilt, innocence, good, evil, life, death. As the shadows around Riverdale deepened, the lines that separated these polar opposites blurred and distorted. I'm guilty, Cheryl said in biology class, but of what? Good and evil, light and dark, Betty and Veronica, two sides of the same Janus coin. Given Betty's article, Weatherby needed a sacrificial lamb, needed to make an example of someone. So after Hermione Lodge negotiated a lesser sentence for our two avenging angels, 
Coach Clayton, to save his job, to save the school's reputation, was forced to cut his own beloved son and his goon squad from the teen, an action that, though none of us knew it at the time, would have terrible consequences in the weeks to come. But one thing was certain, Betty and Veronica, now B and V, and maybe forever, had been forged. They walked through the fire and survived. We crave absolutes, they comfort us, but life is infinitely more complex than that. Despite all of our recent troubles, I would have done anything to protect Archie, but Dilton Doily had just opened Pandora's box, and now there was nothing I or anyone could do to save him. It's been a week since the discovery of Jason Blossom's body, but his death is not the first, nor would it be the last casualty that the town of Riverdale would suffer. The Twilight Drive-In, where I work, my home away from home, a piece of town history is closing for good, just when we needed a place to escape to the most. With Sheriff Keller knocking on every door and neighbor suspecting neighbor, Riverdale, every day that passes, is becoming more like Salem during the witch trials. And meanwhile, the girl next door, our friendly neighborhood Hitchcock blonde, Betty Cooper, was wrestling with the knowledge that her best friend, Archie Andrews, was caught up in a forbidden romance. Every town has one, the spooky house that all the kids avoid. Ours was Thornhill, the Blossom family's mansion with its very own graveyard. Entrapped within its walls like some gothic heroine was Cheryl Blossom, still grieving for her beloved brother Jason, linked in death even as they were in life. Every town has one, the house on the haunted hill all the kids avoid. Now that Jason was buried in the earth, it would only be a matter of time until something poisonous bloomed in that long, cold shadow cast by his death. Whatever grew in the rich black soil of the Blossom Garden always found its way to the town, whether it was murder or love or secrets or lies. Fear it's the most basic, the most human emotion. As kids, we're afraid of everything. The dark, the boogeyman under the bed, how we pray for morning, for those monsters to go away. Though they never do, not really. Just ask Jason Blossom. Another fun fact about fear? Sometimes it grows up with you, or it curls up inside of you, tightens around your guts. Each fall, Riverdale High hosts a variety show. This event is no mere student frolic. Here's the thing about fear. It's always there. Fear of the unknown, fear of facing it alone, fear that those closest to you are monsters, fear that as soon as you slay one, there's another monster waiting to take its place, fear that there's one more boogeyman waiting at the end of the dark hill. She was out there, alone, bereft, unmoored. Where was she going? And what would she do next? What makes a place feel like home? Is it warmth and familiarity? Some idealized, make-believe version of the American dream? Is it love and acceptance? Or is it simple safety? Or is it none of these things, and it's a place where the captain of the football team is murdered? Or maybe it's just a forgotten closet under a well-trod staircase, where it's just you and the mice and the spiders, like an extra in a Wes Craven movie. Hope. A word so close to home, and as tricky. As much as we wanted Jason's killer caught and the town, our home, to feel safe again, with every day that passes, our hopes dimmed more and more. There's that old cliché saying, it's darkest before the dawn, but sometimes, there's just darkness. The Coopers, the Stepfords of Riverdale. High school sweethearts who got married and had two beautiful daughters, Polly and Betty, until Jason Blossom happened. And now we would hear from the person who was closest to him those days leading up to his disappearance, Polly Cooper. How a casual conversation turned into an epic forbidden romance. How for reasons still murky, their respective parents tried to tear them apart. 
how their breakup was short-lived because Polly soon learned she was pregnant with Jason's baby, how they became secretly engaged with his grandmother's blessing and her heirloom ring and made plans to run away together to start a new life, and how their dreams of escape went up in flames. Thicker than blood, more precious than oil, Riverdale's big business is maple syrup. Since the town's founding, one family has controlled its lucrative syrup trade, the Blossoms. They were a part of the fabric of our daily lives. Rich or poor, old or young, we consumed Blossom syrup by the bucket. That sickly sweet smell was inescapable. The death of Jason Blossom precipitated a crisis. With the heir apparent gone, who would inherit the family business one day? Certainly not Cheryl. It was a question that brought the wolves to Riverdale. And now the Blossoms were circling the wagons against possible attack from within their own ranks. It seemed that for Veronica, the sins of the father would remain simply that, while Archie Andrews returned from the brink with one more bit of news. Winter had come early to Riverdale, brutal and unforgiving, but it would be nothing compared to the storm that was gathering, a storm of chaos named Cheryl Blossom. Weekdays from 8.25 a.m. to 3.01 p.m., we adhere to a strict regimen. Everything in our lives is controlled, but then, something like the murder of Jason Blossom happens, and you realize there is no such thing as control. There is only chaos. Nevertheless, some of us strive to impose and maintain order in what is, fundamentally, an orderless world, a fact which would very soon be confirmed in ways none of us could have foreseen. Whether you believe in order or chaos, in the end, it's the same. We are either in control of our lives, or merely think we are. People like to say that the death of Jason Blossom changed everything at Riverdale High, but certain things, certain traditions, never change. Take homecoming, for instance. Though Jason's jersey had been retired, the Riverdale Bulldogs would still be playing their arch-rivals, the Baxter High Ravens, with the River Vixens cheering them on. As in previous years, graduates from days of Riverdale past will come to town to relive their more youthful, more carefree days, or to make up for lost time. That night, Sheriff Keller and Mayor McCoy saw what we watched in Archie's garage. Jason, tied to a chair in the basement of a bar on the south side of Riverdale while a serpent, Mustang, taunted him. Then, the unthinkable. Later, we would learn why my father confessed, because Clifford Blossom visited him on the night of his arrest with a threat that I, Jughead Jones, would suffer the same fate as Jason Blossom if my father didn't confess. My dad was protecting me from a monster, and the nightmare was far from over, and our families far from repaired. And though one question had been answered that night, that it was Clifford Blossom who killed Jason, a new mystery loomed over Riverdale. Why had he done it? It was a question only Clifford himself would be able to answer. It was the ultimate cliffhanger. Clifford Blossom had killed himself. But why? Life's not an Agatha Christie novel. It's a lot messier. Turns out the maple syrup was a front for his true business, transporting heroin from Montreal on his trucks. A narrative quickly emerged, and then to Jason's murder at the hands of his father. And oh yeah, I almost forgot. Mr. Blossom threatened my life so that my dad would confess to pulling the trigger, even though all he did was clean up the mess. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for a group of pesky kids who uncovered the truth. Jason's murder had revealed some dark truths none of us were too eager to face, especially not Mayor McCoy, who wanted every last vestige of corruption crushed like a snake under a boot heel. We had many milkshakes that night, and we all felt that as dangerous as the world around us had become, here, at least, in this booth, we were safe. Imagine this instant, frozen in time. 
People will look back at this as the exact moment the last bit of Riverdale's innocence finally died, when darkness won, marked by an act of violence that was anything but random. Our story continues. The mayor's jubilee was supposed to change everything, be a new start, but when we woke up the next morning, Riverdale was still, at its heart, a haunted town. Meanwhile, Archie Andrews, who doesn't even have a driver's license yet, is at this very moment careening down the streets of Riverdale trying to outrace death. Now, I don't believe in miracles, usually, but it was a miracle that Archie got his dad to Riverdale General without wrecking the truck. Once Mrs. Andrews got to town and Mr. Andrews was back at home recovering in his own bed, Archie's true vigil began. He made a promise, a vow, to protect his father from harm. And as long as the man in the black hood was out there, in the night, Archie intended to keep that promise, never imagining that the angel of death was stalking different streets tonight, in the small town of Greendale, just on the other side of Sweetwater River. Behold Pop's Chocolate Shop. For decades, the heart of Riverdale, now the latest casualty in the town's growing battle against darkness. And far from the glow of Pop's neon sign on Sweetwater Bridge, Archie Andrews had arranged a secret rendezvous with Dilton Doily. That night, for the first time in weeks, Archie would sleep, before waking up the next morning to a living nightmare. Every fairy tale comes with the same warning. Good children should never go into the woods alone. Stray from the path and who knows what you'll encounter. A hungry wolf, a handsome devil, or maybe something worse. Those kids in the fairy tales who go into the woods, they don't come back the same. They're always changed in some fundamental way, sometimes for the better, more often for the worse. That's the common misconception about fairy tales. They very rarely have a happy ending. Everyone's afraid to say it, so let me be the first. There is a serial killer amongst us. San Francisco had the Zodiac, New Orleans had the Axemen, Texarkana, Texas had the Phantom Killer. The list goes on and on. Add to their ranks Riverdale's very own psychopath, the Black Hood. There it was. Terror was seeping into the bedrock of Riverdale. A town hall meeting had been set up by Mayor McCoy. People were afraid to walk the streets alone, especially as dusk approached. Shops closed early, locks were added to doors, suspicions between the north and south side deepened, fanned into flames by Alice Cooper. As everyone wondered what danger lurked in the dark, when we would hear from the Black Hood next, and how far into darkness would Archie go on his quest to avenge his father and to stop the Black Hood. And so the young lovers went back to where it all began, Sweetwater River, to try and end the cycle of violence. We'd come to think of that night, the night of the rumble, the night of the town hall, as a turning point. Riverdale would no longer be the town with Pep. From now on, it would be known as the town that dreaded sundown. In Riverdale, everyone wears a mask, not just the Black Hood. But every so often, the mask slips, and our true selves are laid bare for all the world to see. So we scramble to put it back on, like a kid in a cheap Halloween costume. But it's too late. People have already seen what's underneath, and it's terrifying. In the end, the girl next door came clean about her dance macabre with the Black Hood, further confirmation that everyone in Riverdale wears a mask. Case in point, Robert Phillips. By day, he is a kind, caring, English lit teacher, hiding his true identity, a ruthless drug dealer. Like the Red Death showing up in an Edgar Allan Poe story, the Black Hood had come to Riverdale. With that grimmest of reapers looming over us, how did we cope? 
In the case of Archie and Veronica, it was through carnal defiance. With every kiss and embrace, they seemed to be saying, You have no power over me, Death. In fact, Varchie became the opposite of Death. In Archie's bedroom, in his garage, even in the Pembroke. After all, if our young lovers dared to defy the Black Hood, why not risk Hiram Lodge's wrath as well? That night, I realized, it was like we'd been playing a game of snakes and ladders. Me, Betty, Archie, Veronica. And in one fell swoop, we all slid off the board and into freefall. And not just us, other people, maybe innocent, maybe not, had been dragged into our game as old wounds reopened and as feelings that had long been buried shook loose. And a boy looked out his window at the girl next door, as if for the very first time. Used to be, in ye olden days, every December a lord of misrule presided over the winter holidays, called, back then, the Feast of Fools. And so another mystery was wrapped up in a neat, tidy bow, just in time for Christmas. Throughout the Black Hood's reign of terror, Betty had stared into the blackest of voids, the place where Joseph Conway's soul had once perhaps existed. And in that void, she had seen a dark reflection, a truth that could not be burned away, a truth that whispered to her, this isn't over. You know how there are some towns where bad things always seem to happen? Well, Riverdale has become one of those towns. The most recent horror? The school janitor turned out to be a serial killer. But we were putting him away along with our Christmas decorations. Now we were back to your typical small town intrigues, clandestine meetings behind closed doors and the like. Yes, by and large, it was business as usual in Riverdale. And so Archie, always trying to do the good, noble thing, took another step further into darkness. And Betty, the girl next door, had no sooner vanquished one monster than she'd perhaps let another one into her family's lives. One week after Riverdale's high absorption of its Southside counterpart, and everything was the same. And nothing was the same. Take Archie Andrews. On the surface, he's getting ready for basketball tryouts, as he does every winter. But underneath, he was churning. His life in chaos after an unexpected visit from the feds. Meanwhile, the town was preparing to honor its founding father, General Augustus Pickens. And so, with the stroke of a few keys, the dark education of Betty Cooper had begun. And also, perhaps, the criminal apprenticeship of Archie Andrews. That night, plans would be made, alliances would be formed, and a horrifying act of desecration would be committed, ensuring that the town's civil war would go from a possibility to an inevitability. It's a classic trope of mob movies. Rich, high-rolling gangster takes small-town kid under his wing. Small-town kid is ushered into an intoxicating, but dangerous, life of crime. And in one reckless moment, the lives of the Cooper women were forever changed. They were a mother wanting to protect her son, and a daughter wanting to protect her mother, while less than 50 yards away. Picture a girl living in the house next door, give her a ponytail, and a secret. Day after day, she checks the headlines and watches the local news, waiting to be exposed. And bit by bit, the walls close in until what was once just a house becomes her own private purgatory. Archie didn't say any more about what happened in the woods that terrible night. At least not to us. And so this chapter comes full circle, ending where it began, with a girl in a house that was far from sweet, and perhaps far from safe. I was running out of time, and maybe so was Riverdale. Hiram Lodge had been making moves, big moves. 
but with no proof of criminal behavior, all I could do was speculate. What was Hiram's master plan for Riverdale, and why did it suddenly feel so close to fruition? And there it was. The lodges had won. Time had run out for Riverdale. One sheet of paper, that's all it took to confirm everything Betty had feared, that she'd let a dangerous stranger into her house. Welcome to the Sisters of Quiet Mercy, home for troubled youths, where a certain Cheryl Blossom finds herself more troubled than usual. With nary a thing to look forward to except for movie nights, during which times Cheryl would imagine what her friends might be doing. As Cheryl Blossom withered, her friends were squaring off on the most public of stages. The Angel of Death had once more come to Riverdale. Midge Clump's gruesome murder had gutted the entire town, and in grief brought us together. Some prisoners aren't bound by chains or locked in cells. Archie's prison was built with his own ambition and rage, and he just handed Hiram Lodge the key, while across town the past was proving to be a cruel jailer. On the eve of the mayoral debate, as Archie Andrews goes door-to-door, -door, he doesn't mention the murder of his classmate Midge Clump. Most believed Midge was murdered by someone else. But not Archie. He was certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Black Hood was back, as was his next-door neighbor, Betty Cooper, who had, in fact, laid eyes on the Black Hood and suspected he was much closer. And though Veronica said it as a half-joke, in fact, that's exactly what her father was doing. It was a foolish question, asked between two young people in love, but it didn't matter, for it would soon be overshadowed by the next day's cataclysmic events. It was the calm before the storm, the summer before your junior year in high school, and how do you spend it? Working some brutal summer job that actually makes you look forward to going back to school? Or maybe you have an internship that doesn't pay much. That's okay, because it's for a good cause. Or maybe you spent it at Sweetwater Swimming Hole, you and the best friends you'll ever have. Or maybe you spent most of June, July, August in a courtroom supporting our pal, Archie Andrews, who was on trial for a murder he didn't commit, despite the DA's closing arguments. We've all felt it on the first day of a new school year, butterflies in the stomach. We've all looked around and wondered, where am I going to fit in here? Who am I going to sit with at lunch? Will I even make it to lunch? Multiply that by a thousand, and that's how Archie Andrews felt as he was being processed at the Leopold and Loeb Juvenile Detention Center. Either way, by next weekend, almost every student at Riverdale High would be playing Griffins and Gargoyles, and the real game was just beginning. A deadly, mutating virus had been introduced into the ecosystem of Riverdale, and it was spreading like an epidemic. For every manual confiscated, two popped up in its place and the ever-resourceful students of Riverdale High were playing it everywhere. Why? Because for us, the game was an escape from our nightmarish reality, a fantasy land at our fingertips. But for our parents, it was a death-dealing nightmare. In the end, why did Warden Norton do it? Was he afraid of retribution from the authorities for his illegal activities? Or was it that the game of G&G &G he'd been playing was finally over, and the Gargoyle King was calling him home to ascend? Either way, the result was the same. Death by cyanide poisoning. The two young men had been walking for days. Looking at them, you might think they were brothers. And in a way, they were. Brothers, fearful that Hiram Lodge might catch up to them. It was a day like any other. Everything seemed normal. Students went to class. The vixens prepared for the annual pep rally. Couples had their stolen moments in quiet classrooms. 
But in Riverdale, there's no such thing as normal, as Cheryl Blossom was about to discover. And just like that, in a few frantic moments, the town we'd known all our lives was once again changed. But this time, irrevocably. It was time for us to brace for a terrible impact. And while Archie Andrews headed away from the doomed town of Riverdale, we raced towards it. For that night was the fruition of a game that had been planned for and played across the years. What hero's journey would be complete without a self-imposed exile? Witness Archie Andrews. Just as Luke Skywalker went to planet Dagobah, so too had Archie been in the Canadian hinterlands, wondering what dark demons he would have to conquer before being able, finally, to go home. And speaking of home, since Riverdale's quarantine, the crime rate in town had risen. There'd been, for instance, a series of daring cat burglaries. It's been five weeks since we were cut off from the rest of the world. The quarantine's been lifted, but the town still hasn't gotten its pet back. Though above ground, Riverdale was a haunted shell of its former self. Underground, at Veronica's Le Bon Nui, life was beautiful. 8.47 on Wednesday morning, Archie Andrews died. At least, the Archie we knew. What returned to Riverdale was something different than the red-headed boy next door, with dark hair and scars both inside and out. Riverdale, once a safe, decent, innocent place, had become noir town. Like the setting of a Raymond Chandler story filled with dames to kill for, postmen who were like to ring twice, and more mobsters than a Scorsese retrospective at the Bijou. We were a town of lost souls, each of us wrestling with demons, each of us with secrets we were trying to keep. Mine was on the large side, six foot five to be exact. I was covering up the death of a wicked man, but tall boy Petite wasn't the only fresh corpse in Noir Town. Claudius Blossom had taken the big sleep, and my girlfriend, Betty Cooper, had murder on the brain. And murderers in Betty's world needed to be brought to justice. Meanwhile, Archie Andrews no longer felt hunted by Hiram Lodge, but he was still haunted, trapped in that in-between place, avoiding his destined face-to-face -face with the man in black. Archie struggled, searching for a sense of purpose. The only thing Archie knew for sure? He was angry, and hitting things made it better. With Hiram laid up in the hospital, clinging to life, there was blood in the water, and sharks were closing in on the mobster's daughter, Veronica Lodge. Yes, we all had our problems. The town was drowning in them. A good-looking one was about to walk through my door. At the docks, it was a classic con, smoke and mirrors with a pretty girl. And Betty Cooper thought, gotcha. That's one thing about being a crime boss. You learn to never leave a paper trail. But Hermione Lodge, it seems, was out of practice. And that is when Betty realized, no one's innocent in Crime Town. Certainly not Hiram Lodge's mystery mistress. Why was Hiram faking water test reports? What was he hiding? What did any of this have to do with who shot him? Back in an eerily deserted Riverdale general, Archie Andrews was a man on a mission, on a collision course with his dark destiny. After months of torment at the hands of the man in black, he was trying to bring a sorry chapter in his life to a close, the only way he knew how. Meanwhile, in case you'd forgotten, Betty's encounter with Penelope had shaken her worldview. There was only one person she could talk to about it. So Hermione and I were deadlocked in a stalemate, much like Hiram and Archie, and Betty and Penelope. As for Minetta, I didn't imagine there was much to worry about. Perhaps in Riverdale, the best you could hope for wasn't to win, but to draw, and pray not to lose. 
Riverdale is like Bizarro Town, where murder, mystery, and candy drugs aren't the exception. They're the norm. You forget sometimes that people are still just living their lives, doing things as ordinary as getting married. Griffins and gargoyles, serpents and ghoulies, Riverdale was a veritable jungle of mythological creatures, species jockeying for power, and at the dark heart of it all. Mid-century colonial, on a quiet, elm-lined street, three bedrooms, four baths, perfect for families, plenty of storage and generous closet space, you will be happy here. What exactly is the American dream? For my dad, on the eve of his 50th birthday, the American dream was this. A father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a loyal hound, food on the table, the only thing missing was... It was the deadliest prom night since Carrie's. Riverdale High had been overrun by the Black Hood, my girlfriend's dad, and the Gargoyle King, true identity yet to be determined. We needed answers, starting with... It's been a quiet few months in Riverdale. Spring slid into summer and some semblance of normal life resumed. The terrors of the farm weren't forgotten, but they had started to fade. Griffins and Gargoyles was already becoming the stuff of suburban legend. Indeed, the big topic of conversation around town was July 4th. After some debate, it was decided that there would be an Independence Day parade down Main Street, Riverdale's first in three years. But there would be no fireworks display over Sweetwater River. The Blossoms used to sponsor them, but without their support, the town couldn't afford them. Like I said, things have actually been pretty quiet lately, enough that I'd actually gotten some real writing done. How do you sum up the life of a man like Fred Andrews? You could start with the facts that he was born at Riverdale General Hospital, that his parents were Arthur and Virginia Andrews, that he led the Riverdale High baseball team to two consecutive state championships, took over the family business at 18, got married, had a son, settled down. And while others were rushing to get out of Riverdale, Fred was setting down roots. When our town saw a pariah and closed its doors, Fred saw a lost soul and opened his. There was always room at his table in his home for others. Whenever our town was under attack, Fred was on the front line, fighting for it, defending it. He was our good Samaritan, our George Bailey, our knight in flannel armor. And by the way, he was a hell of a good tipper. Fred left Riverdale better than when he found it. That's his legacy. After Mr. Andrew's funeral, the rest of the summer vacation passed in a surreal haze. Betty, Veronica, and I spent as much time as we could with Archie. We had dinner at Pops every night, and every day you could tell he was getting better and better. I'm not saying that he wasn't still heartbroken, the entire town was, but my pal Archie's a fighter. And by the last day of summer vacation, while the football field was being mowed for the new season, and the school floors were being buffed to a shine, and banners for the first dance of the year were being hung, Archie was doing what he does best. If it was, it was an elaborate one. Over the next few days, then weeks, more and more citizens of Riverdale received copies of similar tapes. Footage of their houses being watched from across the street. For hours upon hours. No messages were included with the videos, which somehow made the whole thing even more disturbing. So that by Halloween, the entire town was on edge. Who would get the next tape? What do they mean? Were they a warning? A test? They say every town gets the hero it deserves. Riverdale's was Archie Andrews. High school athlete by day, would-be crime fighter by night. Patrolling the shadows of Sketch Alley down by the south side docks where Archie's community center is. You wouldn't want to be caught there too long after dark. That's when the rats came out. 
All in all, not an auspicious second outing for Riverdale's dark-suited vigilante. And speaking of crime-fighting, this is what happens in Riverdale once the sun sets. Dodger's minions go to work. He recruits hungry and homeless kids so that if they're arrested, they do some time in juvie, but then they're back on the streets working for Dodger again. They're chewed up by the system, except that recently, someone has thrown a tire iron into the system. Usually, Dodger or the police would go to the kid next, but tonight is his lucky night. Instead of getting sucked back into the system, then spat out again, these kids, they've got someone looking out for them now. People who ask themselves, how do you save a town? And who know the answer? One kid at a time. For every kid saved, there was one less hustling for Dodger. And that would not do at all. Meanwhile, in existential hell, I was facing the tyranny of a blank page and needed my anchor. Thanksgiving, the time of year when friends and family gathered eat turkey, watch the big game, and give thanks for all that they have. But for Archie, this year was all about what he'd lost. It was the first Thanksgiving without his father. The void that Fred Andrews left was as cold as the winds that were blowing through the town. And while Archie was thinking of ways to give back, Riverdale's new mayor was grabbing all that he could. Hiram Lodge had run unopposed, allowing him to ascend to power virtually overnight. Meanwhile, across town at Riverdale General Hospital, a different family gathering was taking place. For the Dickinson crime clan, the only dish on the Thanksgiving menu was revenge. Weather forecasts were calling for an epic ice storm, and you could literally feel the temperature dropping. After a brief hiatus, Riverdale's Watcher in the Burbs had released his much-anticipated follow-up. In the dead of night, a second round of voyeuristic videotapes had been left on doorsteps across town. Once again, VCRs were dusted off with dread. Once again, they played hours upon hours of footage of the viewer's home. Only this time, the camera was much, much closer. The implications were terrifying. What was next for the Watcher? Breaking and entering? And as if those deliveries weren't unsettling enough, colleges and universities had started sending out their first wave of envelopes. Some thin, some thick, all life-changing. Making it a particularly stressful time for Riverdale seniors. Which is why Principal Honey asked the school's guidance counselor, Mrs. Burble, to offer extended office hours. So whatever anxiety the students were feeling, they'd have a licensed professional to go to for confidential comfort and or advice. Something, it turned out, many of us were long overdue for. Spirit Week had arrived at Riverdale High, and for the first time in years, the students actually had something to celebrate. The long-suffering Bulldogs, in large part thanks to breakout star Monroe Moore, were finally going to the state finals, where they would take on the undisputed titans of the gridiron, the Stonewall Stallions. For Principal Honey, who commissioned an article about the game from ace reporter Betty Cooper, the championship was, at last, something positive to promote. But for Riverdale star quarterback Archie Andrews, this spirit week was special for a different reason. It would be the last of his career. Winter had come to Riverdale, and everyone was suffering from an acute case of quiz show fever. No one more so than Betty Cooper, who was pouring her considerable energies into beating the tar out of Stonewall Prep's teen, led by, wouldn't you know it, Brett Weston Wallace. The only person immune to quiz show fever? My pal Archie Andrews, who was feeling a lot less lonely these days. Honor. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot at Stonewall Prep. The week started like any other. Who would have guessed where I'd be by the end of it? It started out like any other week. 
Who would have guessed that by Friday night? Well, it finally happened, the moment we'd have all been waiting for. A fire in the woods, three friends in their underwear, covered in blood. My iconic beanie up in smoke. Driving back to Riverdale, they didn't say one word to each other. They should have. They should have gotten their stories straight. That's the thing about murder. You've got to have the stomach for it. Especially if all signs point to you having committed it. The weirdest thing about pretending to be dead is that after a while, you actually start feeling like you're dead. As in, dead as a doornail dead. For starters, I was underground, as if in a tomb. Granted, I was hiding out in Dilton's doomsday bunker and not in a coffin, but still. Two weeks, no sunlight, with no sense of time or its passing. It's gotta be what limbo feels like, right? Other similarities to being dead? Not one, but two obituaries about me ran. A rather perfunctory one in the Riverdale Register. A second, more irreverent one in the blue and gold. I liked that one. I had a funeral. Well, a wake. I watched it on my laptop, live-streamed from a camera Betty had set up in the living room. Betty and I suspected the Sonys would show up. And sure enough, they did. We wanted to study them to see if anything they did was suspicious. Not that there was any doubt in our mind about their guilt. The preppies had stone-cold murdered me and were trying to pin it on Betty. We just couldn't prove it. Not yet. Meanwhile, the hardest part of playing dead was letting everyone believe I was in the semi-sweet hereafter. Our family, our friends, the lies we had to tell, the things we had to do to sell that illusion. Like pretending that my bereft girlfriend had found comfort in the strong, steely arms of my best bud, which turned out to be the greatest misdirect of them all. Of course, we needed to let some people know the truth. Except in one case. My kid sister Jellybean didn't have to be told. We brought my dad into it pretty quick, too. Archie went rogue and told his mom, too. And then there was Veronica's sister, Hermosa, who was sniffing around looking for bones. In the months that followed, people will ask us, did we need to do it? Go to such extreme lengths? Maybe. Maybe not. But this I did know. If I was going to recover without the preppies trying to kill me again and figure out how to solve my own murder, I needed the illusion to be perfect to buy myself time. And so, while above me a world without Jughead continued spinning forward, I poured over every scrap of evidence we'd gathered, went over every detail of my time at Stonewall Prep, looking for hidden patterns, hints, and clues. But this was a different kind of mystery than the ones we'd tackled before. This wasn't a whodunit. This was a why-done-it. More psychological. I needed to get under my suspect's skin, inside their heads. I had to let my intuition take over, to draw these strands together. The missing Stonewall Four, the accidental deaths of DuPont's classmates, my attempted murder. How were they all connected? A key piece of information came from Hermosa, which was that Donna... It was over. The evils of Stonewall Prep had been vanquished, and life in Riverdale more or less picked up where it had left off. But at its heart, Riverdale was, and is, a wicked little town. So no one was surprised when a third round of sinister videotapes was delivered to our doorsteps. No one slept much that night, as they waited for a new day to dawn. There's a problem that comes once you get caught up on your homework. Your mind wanders and evil creeps back in. Was the voyeur somewhere amongst us in the crowd, playing his long game, turning the temperature up ever so slowly, so that by the time we frogs realized we were being boiled alive, it was too late? Lynchian Adjective to describe something inspired by the noted American filmmaker David Lynch. And or to describe something that is both incredibly macabre and incredibly mundane. 
also Riverdale's status quo, reaching new depths of perversion with the discovery of a videotape in which someone wearing a mask of me is bludgeoned to death by someone wearing a mask of my girlfriend. Forget art imitating life. Here, we had a case of art imitating death. The snuff film that showed Jason Blossom being murdered by dear old dad in a bizarre recreation of it. The problem with believing that you have all the answers is that it blinds you to the truth that's right before your eyes. Okay, and there we have it. All of the official Jughead voiceovers and outros and narration and commentary over four seasons. Couple interesting facts here. Okay, so in total, there are 76 episodes of Riverdale that have come out so far in the first four seasons. There are 14, I believe, that don't have any form of Jughead voiceover, so 62 of them did. So this is a lot, a lot of work to go through here. Now, like I mentioned, we do have some voiceover mid-season three where Jughead is is play acting his griffins and gargoyles stuff didn't include that i also obviously wasn't including other people's voiceover like we have some alice voiceover throughout the midnight club episode and a few other bits of information like that couple fun things i can read here as well we have the story that jughead wrote for the baxter brothers mystery which was actually the story that he had to rewrite as a last ditch effort when he was told that he had a deadline of the ides of march I can read a little bit of that. It's really just like a autobiographical bit of Jughead being at Stonewall High, but we get a couple sentences here. The boys themselves couldn't see it yet, but it was a suspicious coincidence, to say the least. Two new scholarship students arrived at Brickbridge Prep after being recruited by the same teacher, Mr. Shepard. The old acquaintances settled into their new lives, unaware that one or both of them were destined to be a sacrificial lamb the perfect victim to the perfect murder. It was All Hallows' Eve at Brickbridge Prep. Jarhead was burning the midnight oil, studying, when suddenly his vision narrowed. He crumpled to the ground and awoke to a real-life nightmare. He was locked in a solid oak coffin. My classmates drugged me, he realized groggily, but why? The truth was sinisterly simple. It was so that he wouldn't be a witness to the perfect murder. For you see... The seminar students were plotting to kill his roommate, Bison, on that very devil's night. So I love some of the kind of uh, close but no cigar names that we have in world here. Jarhead, obviously, instead of Jughead. Brick Bridge instead of Stonewall. Mr. Shepard instead of Mr. Chipping. Not really sure how that one connects. And then, of course, Bison instead of Moose. That's another fun bit. That is, we, we do actually get screen images of, you know, Jughead reading that. So only some of it is, is voiceover. And then the Killing Mr. Honey stuff. So this is the bits we get from his writing there. Kidnapping Mr. Honey was supposed to be a joke, a prank, payback for how he terrorized them all year long. No one was supposed to die. Once Mr. Honey was secure at the cabin, we took turns watching him. Cheryl was first. Next, it was Archie and Veronica's turn to check on their captive to see if he'd had a change of heart. And so the dragon that had been terrorizing the halls of Riverdale High was beaten, vanquished. All that remained was giving it a proper burial. They were supposed to feel relief. Honey was dead and buried. And they'd gotten away with it. They were free. Free to go back to talking about college and homework and prom. And then, without warning, their carefully constructed plan began to unravel thanks to a guilt-ridden Reggie. 
So I don't know, what, what is to gain from all of this? Is it that Jughead is ridiculous and he likes to use the same couple phrases over and over in his writings, such as angel of death, which was said many, many times, the perfect murder, the town slipping into its darkness, that kind of thing. There's definitely a bit of that that gets spouted throughout this. I think there's also some of the voiceovers and some of the narration is better than other. I would say that season one, it mostly covers the story of Jason's death. And it's reasonable to assume that this is, you know, what Jughead is writing in canon in the book. There's a couple weird ones that I think were kind of thrown in there that don't actually really make sense, such as in season one, episode three, when Jughead is talking about Coach Clayton having to cut Chuck from the football team, and one line in the voiceover says, an action that, though none of us knew it at the time, would have terrible consequences in the weeks to come. Were there really any terrible consequences to him cutting Chuck from the team? I mean, Chuck and Cheryl show up at the birthday party, you know, in episode 10, and they cause a little bit of mischief, but that's not really like terrible consequences. So maybe I'm just forgetting something, but I, I don't know about that. Season one's more or less makes sense because it's known in the story that Jughead is writing a book. We see his dad reading it. We see him typing on his computer a lot. That kind of makes sense. Season two even also, I feel like is pretty reasonable. He gets a typewriter. He's writing on that a lot. He's trying to talk about this town-wide mystery of the Black Hood and a lot of Jughead's character in that season is writing so that that, that works I think season three is when it really starts to go kind of downhill because he's kind of talking about griffins and gargoyles, but he's also playing griffins and gargoyles. There's also a lot more in season three about like Betty and Archie and things that are more omnipotent commentary that he wouldn't really have a perspective on. We also notice throughout all of these, sometimes he's he's writing or talking as if it's happening. Like, you know, it was a week since Jason's death. And then sometimes he's talking as if it's way far in the future, like, oh, way back in Riverdale you know, this town, experience things, whatever. He also does a lot of, but only if they knew what was about to come next. There, there's so much of that, which I know is just a narrating trope and I probably shouldn't be picking on. And, and look, I love the Jughead voiceovers. I think it's one thing that this show does that like adds a little bit of stylized element to it. It's, it's really what brought me in to the first season. Kirsten may have different opinions, but I feel like season one, the opening with the Jughead voiceover over and the music and, and the very stylized brother and sister with the red hair wearing white getting into the boat. I don't find it to be creepy in an incestuous way in the way that maybe she does. I thought it was very like, oh, this is something we don't see very much in the colors and the contrast. And this is a show that's really going to pay attention to the way that it's being stylized. And, and so I kind of think that that's fun and something that drew me into Riverdale. And it definitely gets a little more lazy throughout some of the other seasons and episodes of of the voiceover and, and how it really does or does not fit in. So anyway, this was kind of just a weird experiment I wanted to try and see maybe somebody gained something from this. Maybe it was just kind of fun to, to go back and get like a weird summary of the season. Maybe if you listen to this and you're trying to pick out, oh, what exactly is he talking about in this moment or this moment? Because sometimes he was talking about Polly Cooper, but he didn't say it by name. And so do you remember? 
remember that? Do you remember what it was that happened in the woods with Archie that he didn't tell his friends about? So it's kind of a fun way to just piece together your memory of the show. And there was definitely a lot of stuff that I had forgotten about that was kind of fun to go back and look at. So I had a I had a good time doing this. Uh, definitely a little bit hard to just sit here and read intense, silly Jughead writing for a while. It doesn't necessarily have my same inflection or anything. And I was trying not to exactly do it the way that he does. This is certainly not a Jughead impression at all. Not trying, not trying to even pretend that I have one of those. So, uh, you know, it's just, just FP with the boy, boy, you better not be drinking whatever's in that cup, boy. That's my favorite one. Good old, good old season four. I think that's like season four, episode two. Fun times. All right. Maybe someone listened to this. Maybe they didn't. Okay. That's all for for this random episode thing. Silliest, most ridiculous podcast I've ever made for sure. Some may call it procrastination. And to them, I would say you're correct. That, that's what this is. We've got more stuff coming. I know people are waiting for some of our season two content that is coming. We are going to do a, a, a different bonus episode before that that we've talked about. So we're going to cover a a Riverdale slash Archie Comics themed movie and then we will dive into season two and I'm sure throughout some more of our season two coverage we will have more spoiler series episodes if you're interested in that. Feel free to follow everything podcast related at KowskiCast.com or on KowskiCast Twitter which is Cow with a K for both of those. You can also follow everything by reaching out to me or following me on Twitter as well. I'm at Mary on on every platform. Kirsten is at Kirsten Said What on every platform. If you listen to our season one coverage and you like Hannah, Hannah, you can also find her at hannahv.exe on Instagram as well to see what she's up to. We've got a lot of other interesting things going to be happening in the Kowski cast universe in the next couple weeks to months, depending on how fast some of it comes out. We're just waiting on a few behind the scenes details to be fit together. So if you like Kowski cast, but maybe you want to listen to some Something that's not Riverdale related. First off, not sure how you got through this podcast to hear this message, but more will be coming. All right, everyone. Talk to you next time. And that is when Betty realized no one's innocent in crime town.